If you will, um, look with me at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would apply this, your word, superintended by your spirit, for the sake of the church in the first century and for the sake of the church in every century, that you would make it clear to us, that you would apply it to our hearts and minds, that we would understand that your Son became incarnate to sanctify us and to call us brothers, and that we would give thanks. We pray that we would hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since we began in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, as we've been moving through the book of Hebrews, we've been focusing on the incarnation of the Son of God. In other words, we've been focusing on the fact that the eternal Son of God took on humanity. Humanity with all of its weakness and frailty and sufferings He took that upon himself without sin. And we've been focusing on that incarnation of the Son of God. And today what I want to do is I want to focus on two benefits of the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, 
These aren't the only two benefits there are, but I want to focus on these two benefits today. It's really simple. The first benefit is he sanctifies us. First benefit of the incarnation of the Son of God is that he sanctifies us. The second benefit of the incarnation of the Son of God is that he calls us brothers. He sanctifies us and he calls us brothers. That's the outline for the sermon today. So here's the first benefit I want to deal with. He sanctifies us. He sanctifies us. The Son sanctifies us. Look at verse 11. As we've been moving through, we've, we come to verse 11. If you haven't heard verses 5 through 10, we invite you to go back and listen to our podcast to hear that. But, but let's begin here at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Notice that phrase, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Now what we're talking about when we get in this kind of language of sanctification, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, we're talking about priestly service. The priest is sanctifying those who are sanctified, the people. They, the people, um, understood this. These Hebrew Christians, they received this. They understood this from the Mosaic Covenant. What happened in their history under the Old Testament? The Old Testament priests under the Levitical priesthood would sanctify the people of God through daily and annual sacrifices. The people understood that they were sinful, unholy, unclean, defiled, and could not, therefore, enter God's presence for worship. They understood that. We see that problem right at the end of the book of Exodus. As the people have been taken out of Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, God makes a covenant with them through Moses at Mount Sinai. And he gives them a law. But he doesn't just give them a law. He gives them a sacrificial system and a priesthood. And he says, here's how you erect a tabernacle. And I will dwell in the tabernacle. And there at the tabernacle, you will dwell with me in my presence. And they construct the tabernacle. And we get to the end of the book of Exodus. The tabernacle's done. And God indwells the tabernacle. And we think, finally, the climax has been reached. And Moses, we're told at the end, cannot enter the tabernacle. Now, Moses is their prophet. Moses is their redeemer. Moses is if you will, the godliest man in all of Israel, and he can't go into the presence of God. We have a huge problem. And Exodus leaves us with the problem. That's where Leviticus picks up. And Leviticus gets into the sacrificial system that the priest would apply in order to remedy that problem so that the people could dwell with God and he with them. And so the people understood this. The Lord provided these priests and this sacrificial system to remedy the problem, their unholiness, their uncleanness, their being defiled. He put this in place to sanctify the people so that they could dwell in his presence, but this was only temporary. That priesthood and those sacrifices were only temporary. They had to be repeated daily and annually. And it was temporary because It was only, now I'm going to use a word here you're not used to using probably, but it was temporary because it was only typological. In other words, by typological, it was pointing forward to something else. It was a shadow of a 
substance, like you cast a shadow on the ground, the shadow tells me something about you, but the shadow isn't you. The shadow points me to some reality about you. And so I know you're there because your shadow is there. Well, this is a shadow pointing forward to the substance. And so the blood of bulls and goats never atoned for their sin in and of themselves. The blood of bulls and goats were only atoning in as much as they knew that was a shadow pointing to the substance who would atone for their sins, the Christ. So it was temporary. All of this was anticipating, if you will, a priest who would come. An eternal priest. Not one who had to make a sacrifice for his own sins because he himself was sinless, holy, undefiled. All of this pointed forward to a sacrifice that could be given once for all to sanctify the people. And Jesus is that priest. And Jesus is that sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Because I want you to see the cultic nature of this language of sanctification. When I say the cultic nature of it, I don't mean like you think, ooh, a cult. I don't mean that. Like the cultists, the worship, how they worshiped and ordered that. Look at that, the nature of that. Chapter 10 and verse 1. For since the law, that's speaking about the Mosaic covenant I was just telling you about, has but a shadow. Notice that language. See, I didn't make that up. It wasn't my illustration provided for me. Has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, the law, the Mosaic covenant, can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. It can never consecrate you. It can never sanctify you. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Notice, he took on flesh. He became incarnate. You have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that's the Mosaic covenant and its institutions, in order to establish the second, that's Christ's covenant or the new covenant, And by that will, we have been, notice this, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that all is all time. Doesn't ever need to be repeated. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should have made a footstool for his feet. For, please pay attention to this, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now look back at Hebrews 2.11. Go back to Hebrews 2.11. For he who sanctifies, that is, the Son of God incarnate, Jesus, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that is, us. Now, Hebrews 2.10 says, He is the founder of our salvation. And He was consecrated as the founder of our salvation to His task through suffering. Thus, He, Jesus, is the one who sanctifies. Now, it's true, the Holy Spirit also sanctifies us. He's called the Spirit of sanctification, the Spirit of holiness. And He is sent by Jesus to unite us to Jesus through faith and make us like Jesus. That's why you'll read in the New Testament he'll be called the Spirit of Christ. Because he applies the sanctifying work of Jesus to us. That's his work. Jesus did this work for us. The Holy Spirit applies that work of Jesus to us. So we can properly say the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. We can properly say that Jesus sanctifies us. The focus of Hebrews 2 here is that Jesus is the sanctifier. It's his work that sanctifies us. But I want to consider three kind of major assumptions behind the passage. I don't know if you notice them um, because we don't often stop and meditate enough on what the assumptions are behind what's being said. But there are three major assumptions here. Here's the first major assumption. We need to be sanctified. Hear that? First major assumption. You and I need to be sanctified. I I hope you caught that. You need to be sanctified. It isn't optional as to whether you're sanctified. You need it. We are unholy. We are impure. We are unclean. We are sinful. Not only are we creatures and thus undeserving of seeing our creator's glory. You know, he wants to bring many sons to glory. We're undeserving of that. We're undeserving of sharing it, even just in our status as creatures. Do you follow that? You're the creature. Even apart from sin, you don't deserve to share in the glory of the creator. But more than that, we're sinful creatures. I know it's hard to hear this in our culture that clings so tenaciously to the gospel of self-love. The good news that is proclaimed repeatedly, whether it be on social media or television or in school classrooms or wherever, the good news that is repeatedly preached is the gospel of self-love. Our moral standard is no longer objective and outside of us. Our moral standard is now internal, subjective, based on how we feel about things. If I feel good about it, 
then it's good. If I feel bad about it, then it's bad. And if you put up some external objective moral standard that applies to all people, whether they feel good about it or not, then you're judgy. You guys heard that lately? I don't even know why we go to judgy. Why did you say you're judgmental? You're just destroying the language. But anyway, you're judgy. And I need to be clear of all the people in my life who don't make me feel good about being me. I cannot tell you how much I see that posted on social media. Are there people in your life who are bringing you down? Get rid of them. Throw them out. I'm thinking, man, what if Jesus applied that? I need people who will stand next to me heralding the gospel of self-love, right? That's what I need. I need them to. So so this isn't going to be popular when I say this. And I said it a few weeks ago. You are created out of the dust of the ground. Get over yourself. God reached down to the dirt took some dirt and formed you and breathed life into it. You are from dust, and to dust you shall return. You'll be eaten by worms. You ever consider that? You want to know about your dignity? Someday, worms and other parasites will feast on you. In a very real sense, the worm is your brother. He was made out of the dust, too. You're going to get eaten by your own brother. Think of that. (laughs) And I told you this before, not only are you dust, you're rebellious dust. You look up at the creator and tell him how it ought to be. You declare that his judgments are unjust. And you know better than he does. You must. You go through his word and you put his word under the microscope of your moral judgment and declare him just or unjust on the basis of your great wisdom. You turn from his word and his will and you go your own way. Thus, you are holy, excuse me, unholy, unrighteous, ungodly, filthy, dirty, sinful, rebellious, defiled, condemned, Deserving eternal damnation. You deserve to be in the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That isn't a popular message. You know, it's not where you preach that and then write the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, right? But this is true about you and me. That's the first assumption and you need to be sanctified. It's true about you and me. We need to be sanctified. Second assumption that's there. Those who are not sanctified cannot come to the Father. Does that have to deal with that? The Father wants to bring many sons to glory. We saw that in verse 10. He wants to bring many sons to glory. But in order to bring many sons to glory, He must sanctify you because you cannot come to the Father unless you're sanctified. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Now, I'm not going to unwind everything, every problem this verse causes for you this morning. I'm sorry. We will get to it. 
you'll be, have to wait a frustratingly long period of time, but it'll come. So Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Notice this. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Here's what I want you to get after that. I, I, I'm not going to get into all that that verse means. I just want to get after this. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you're not holy, you won't see him. If you're not holy, you can't see God. You will not see God, nor will you come to him. He is holy, holy, holy. No man can approach him apart from dying in his presence. Now, I know that that's tough for us because certain biblical texts assault our sensibilities, don't they? If you think about when Uzzah... Um, is following the cart that, 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 that they're, they're carrying the, the ark on. And the ark of the covenant, if you remember the story, begins to fall off, and Uzzah reaches up with his hand to stop it from falling into the dirt, and instantly God strikes him dead for touching the ark of the covenant because he's unclean and disobedient in his actions. God had commanded them, don't touch that, you're unclean, you'll die. He did it anyway. Now, I know that when we read that story, we, we think, if you're anything like me, my first inclination, my sensibility internally is to say, what? That, that seems so minor. He was trying to save it from getting dirty on the ground. Why would God strike him dead? Listen, his assumption, his first problem really is his wrong assumption that his hand is cleaner than the dirt on that ground. But we only ask any questions about that story like this because we fail to understand God's holiness and our sinfulness. Let let me up the ante, though. What about hell? I mean, really? Eternal, conscious torment for our sins? Isn't that all a bit much? How could a loving God do that? We ask that because we don't really believe he's holy and we don't really believe we're wicked. That's why we ask it. Thus, we don't see that what we ought to be asking is, how could hell not be? Right? Shouldn't we all go there? How could grace and heaven ever be offered to us? How could a loving God be unjust and just let wickedness go without justice? That's what we ought to be asking. God is holy, and only the holy can see him and enter his presence. Assumption three, this one will probably bother you even more. Those who are not sanctified cannot be united to Christ. Hear that? Those who are not sanctified cannot be united to Christ. I'm not talking about temporal ordering here. I, I want you to hear this. If his work does not sanctify you, if Christ's work does not make you new, set you apart, wash you clean, justify you and sanctify you 
then you can never be united to him. Christ is the head of the church. Will such a beautiful head be united to such a monstrous, monstrously wicked and unclean body? He is a pure groom. Would a pure groom unite himself to such an impure and unclean bride? May it never be. Never. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Keep your hand in Hebrews chapter 2 and look at Ephesians chapter 5. And look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Now, now catch this. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself, his bride to himself, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, the Son loves us and takes us to be his bride by going to the cross precisely to sanctify us so that he might present us to himself in holiness and splendor without spot or blemish. He is the sanctifier, and we are those who are sanctified. But how does the Son sanctify us? Look back at Hebrews chapter 2. I've already hit on this, but I just want you to see it here. Back at Hebrews chapter 2. How does he sanctify us? Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Now notice this phrase that follows there. All have one source. Now this is an interesting text in the Greek. And I will be honest with you, I don't find the ESV translation, the English Standard Version, which is the translation I'm preaching from, to be particularly helpful here in English. I don't mean that these translators have picked a word that is necessarily incorrect. I mean they've picked a word that is, I think, unhelpful in that it doesn't make this text any clearer. We all have one source if you were to, um, let me give, give you a little bit of information about that. In the Greek, that word one, that they translate one source, we're all of one source. In the Greek, that word one is an adjective. And that adjective can be either masculine or neuter. Be masculine or neuter. That's frustrating, isn't it? Like in English, you know, he, you know, as a pronoun, masculine. It, neuter, easy, right? Greek, that, that adjective for one can be masculine or neuter. So then the question is, which is it? If it's masculine, then it's probably best translated, we all have one father. Now that's how the Christian Standard Bible is translated. That's how the New American Standard Bible is translated. We all have one father. <clears throat> then the question is, who is this referring to? Who's your daddy, right? Okay. <laughs> who is our one father that we all share? Who is that? And the, the, the options become, well, our Father, God. In other words, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, not made, but eternally begotten. And we are created by our Father. 
and therefore we are his offspring, as it will say in Acts chapter 17. So we all have one father. In other words, we all come from him. Or our father here could be Adam. We all have one father, Adam. Jesus is a son of Adam, we're told, for example, in the book of Luke. And Adam is the father of us all. And so we all have one father. In other words, is it focusing on the fact that we all come from the father God or potentially our father Adam? We're all a part of humanity. Or it could be referring to our father Abraham. How does Abraham come up? Because Abraham is the federal head in, in the old covenant or under the Abrahamic covenant of all God's people, including Jesus. Which fits, by the way, with verse 16 Drop down there. For surely, verse 16, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of who? Abraham. So it could be that. Or, that's if it's, ma- if the, it, it could be one of those if it's masculine. If it's neuter, then the question is, what is it referring to? Right? Who is it referring to if it's masculine? What is it referring to if it's neuter? If it's neuter, it could be referring to we're all of one covenant. The son being the head of the covenant of grace and us the recipients. Or we're all of one nature. The son sharing our human nature with us. You see the range of choices? Um, One scholar, um, a Baptist scholar, John Gill, he actually just says, it's all of them. It's intentionally vague, basically, so that we we just comprehend all of it here. I that's, that's a nice thought. I, I wish it was easy enough for me to land that way. <clears throat> Regardless, I find the translation one source to be unhelpful because I'm not sure what source points to, ultimately. I think the King James Version actually is more helpful here. This is the King James just says, we're all of one. In other words, they're not going to make a decision for you. Right? We're all of one. Now, I'm prepared to accept that it could be vague because it's encompassing all of what I mentioned. However, I think the context demands that we interpret it all of one, and by all of one, meaning nature. All of one nature. I'm okay with the fact, if you prove me wrong, and it's all of one Father, Adam, or God. I'm good with it. This is not something I'm going to stake my life on. But I think it fits the context best to say we're all of one nature. Because I think the whole context is about the Son becoming incarnate, taking on our nature. Verse 5 through 9 speak of the Son taking on our human nature to be our mediator, our Savior, and our Lord. That's what verses 5 through 9 are about. Look at verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, that being Jesus. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under him. How do I know that's Jesus? Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It's talking about his taking on humanity for us. So verses 5 through 9 seem to focus on his taking on our nature. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, that's the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder or the author or the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So here we have focus there on the fact that he suffered in our place. He must take our nature and pay the penalty of death in our place so that he can bring many sons to glory so that he ends up being unashamed to call us brothers. But if you look at verse 12, notice the quotation, the Old Testament backing, and I'll come 
back to verse 12 and 13 next week. But look what it says. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. He's referring there to Psalm 22, which is all about Christ's suffering. Psalm 22 starts off with this. You guys will know it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which I think is emphasizing his suffering in our human nature. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. Seems to be that he's emphasizing the fact that Jesus, as a man, is trusting in God. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. In other words, not only will I trust in you, God, but the children you've given me will trust in you. Verse, and that's from Isaiah 8, 18. But look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And I think that fits nicely with why we read in Hebrews 2.16, for surely it was not the angels that he helps. Why is it not the angels that he helps? Because he came as a man. He shares our nature. He helps us. Yes, as a child of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. Do you see the emphasis? He sanctifies us, and we are sanctified by him as he came and shared our nature and suffered in our place. He has taken our humanity upon himself to be our Savior, to suffer and die in our place, and thus to sanctify us. So the first benefit of the incarnation of the Son is that he sanctifies us. He sanctifies us. You're holy, clean, pure, saints. You're actually called, in every New Testament letter, Christ's church is called the... I'm not going to give it to you in Greek. It won't won't matter. Christ's church is called the saints, the holy ones. The holy ones. That's what the Greek word means. That's how you're addressed, because he sanctified you. But let's look at the second benefit. The son calls us brothers. The son calls us brothers. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11 again. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one, or are all of one, I think is the best way to translate that. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. As we saw in Hebrews 10, the Father sent, or 2.10, sorry, the Father sent the Son to become incarnate and suffer that he might bring many sons to glory. And the Son became incarnate, shared our flesh and blood, suffered from our weaknesses and infirmities, suffered from our temptations, and faced the punishment due to us, right, that he might call us brothers. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And listen, 
for this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I don't know if you heard that, Christian believer. Did you hear what was just declared with regard to Jesus' filial or brotherly affection toward you? He is not ashamed to call you brothers. We can translate that brothers and sisters, that's fine. I think um, that that's perfectly okay. The, the reason that brothers is picked up there is because you're the co-heirs. If you're brothers, you inherit. Sons, you inherit. But, but brothers and sisters is fine. He's not ashamed to call you his closest kin or family. When he sanctifies you, when he sets you apart from a common use to a holy purpose, when he gives you new life so that you're born again, heart of stone being removed, heart of flesh being put in, when he washes you clean of all your defilement, forgives all your sins, declares you righteous, and brings you into an adoptive relationship by the Spirit with the Father. Listen, He does all that, and when He does that, He is not ashamed of you at all. He is not, even a little bit, ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to take you next to Him and stand before the Father and call you His brother. He's not ashamed to stand before the mocking world and call you his brother. Not ashamed at all. He's not ashamed of you. You might have plenty of reason in your old sinful man for Christ to be ashamed of you. I think if we're all honest, we wonder, is he he just a little reluctant to save me and call me his own? Not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. Not ashamed to call you that. You know that that that's a way to say in the negative what we're saying in the positive. He's proud to call you his brother. Jesus, proud of you because of something you did. Because of something he did. Look at First Corinthians chapter six briefly. I just want you to hear this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And in the Greek, that's actually two terms, meaning the, well, anyway, I'm not going to get into it. So you, you might, no, I don't want you to have to explain it at home to your kids. So both parties, we'll put it that way. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, you won't inherit the kingdom of God in and of yourself. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know what didn't justify you? You know what didn't wash you clean? You didn't clean up your act. That's not what he says here. You were this, but some of you cleaned it up and got tidy. Some of you made it right. Some of you pulled yourselves up by our bootstraps. Some of you earned just enough credit with God to make it good. You were this, but you were washed. You were what? Sanctified. You were justified. How? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You did none of that. The sin up above, you did that. You did none of this sanctifying. And please hear this, Christian. With all your vile sins and actions and attitudes and behaviors, no matter how foul, no matter how unclean, no matter how unholy, no matter how wicked, no matter how shameful, it is not that the Lord Jesus hesitates to save you and wash you clean and call you his own. It's that the Lord Jesus runs after you and washes you clean and declares you his own. He takes you to the Father and says, this one is my own. The Lord Jesus is proud to call you his brothers. Listen to how John Owen reflects on this. Let the world now take its course, and the men thereof do their worst. Let Satan rage, and the powers of hell be stirred up against them. Let the load, let them load them with reproaches and scorn, and cover them all over with the filth, filth sorry, and dirt of their false imputations or accusations. Let them bring into rags, into dungeons, unto death. Christ comes in the midst of all this confusion and says, Surely these are my brothers, the children of my Father, and he becomes their Savior. And this is the stable foundation of comfort and support in every condition. Jesus is not ashamed to call someone brother. So let me ask you, by word of application, then how could we possibly be? How could we possibly be? Our failure to be able to humble ourselves, to be too proud to call another Christian brother because we see them as somehow more defiled than us, more sinful than us, more guilty than us, more fallen than us, more stupid than us, more ignorant than us, is direct evidence that we have missed the glorious good news of the incarnation and suffering of Christ. Missed it. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, how does it start? Right? How does it start? You guys remember? Okay. 
long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is what the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he, after making atonement for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he has inherited this great name. Now think, if he, that one, the creator, the sustainer, the heir of all things, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, if that one is not ashamed to call your Christian brother, brother, then who do you think you are that you could be ashamed to call them such? This is such good news that we are called brother by Jesus. And we're missing the glorious good news of that. We're neglecting to revel in that glorious good news when we start looking down our nose at other Christians as if they're more guilty and defiled than us and we say we're ashamed to call them brother. And you'll only ever come to appreciate this by meditating long. I want you to hear this. You'll only ever appreciate this by meditating long on who Jesus is. See, I'm not telling you to go home and beat yourself up that you've been ashamed of someone who's your brother. Sure, repent. Sure, endeavor to act differently. But you want to know what's going to humble your heart? Not going home and beating yourself up until you feel sufficiently humbled. Won't work. You'll just be obsessed with yourself. What's going to cause you to be sufficiently humble is to meditate long on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Look, look at the response we're called to, and I'll just read it in Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, listen to this, this was declaration. Therefore, holy brothers, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Pay much closer attention to his word. Look to Jesus. Well, this morning, I hope you're encouraged to consider Jesus, the one who sanctified you by taking on your humanity and suffering, taking your curse and the penalty of your sin upon himself, purchasing you with his life, washing you clean, and for this reason, he is not ashamed to call you brothers. On such love, my soul still ponder, love so great, so rich, so free. Say while lost in holy wonder, why, O oh Lord, such love to me? Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would be exalted as your spirit applies your word to our hearts and minds. We ask that we would understand that your Son sanctifies us, that your Son calls us brothers. He's proud to do so, and that that is all of grace. May we rejoice in that grace, and Father, we pray for those who do not know the grace of God in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe 
that they would be saved and that we would be able to join you in proudly calling them brothers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.